3: Hello and welcome to episode 216. Um, I'm not sure of the exact date, I think it was around August time I started this podcast, but it's five years this year. I thought I would have been snapped up by Sky Arts as a presenter long, long before now. At the end of this episode there will be a little um, bit of information telling you how you can support the podcast via our Patreon page. You can do so for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. It all helps to keep the content flowing. But if you're unable, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. Well, in this episode, I'm speaking to sculptor Holly Stevenson. I've not met Holly before, although we had chatted on the socials. And I should mention a big thank you to Tanny Burns for the introduction. If you know Holly's work, then you'll be aware that not only is her work amazing visually, but the concept is absolutely fascinating. Now, I don't want to give any spoilers here, so we'll go straight into the conversation, so then she can tell you for herself. So please, come and join me in conversation with Holly Stevenson.
4: Being an artist, I think, is really strange because it's such a solitary occupation generally, Um, but yet it's an occupation that then craves attention. So it's like that paradox, isn't it? It's like, look at me, look at me, look at me, but, well, look at my work, which yeah. is me, but then don't look at me, leave me alone. And so I think um, the way that being in, a, a, in an artist sort of like community like Thameside rubs off is the fact that you don't feel like a weirdo. You know you're not alone. You know there's yeah. loads of other weird weirdos. People, <laughs> yeah, yeah, weirdos <laughs> going to work in the freezing cold, in five layers of clothing yeah. and a woolly hat and turning on a very expensive ceramic heater or oil-filled radiator to make something that realistically nobody needs or wants. There's a there's a big cuddle in that.
3: And getting back to you personally, how would you describe what you do to someone that wouldn't know your work? I make ceramic sculpture.
4: Now, this is the weirdy bit. Um, so I make ceramic sculpture that is um what can i say so my work is described as idiosyncratic basically i make ceramic sculpture about how i feel about life and i've got this ongoing project called in sigmund freud's ashtray
0: brilliant
4: um i'm really into psychoanalysis and i go and see an analyst every week and i have sort of built this into my practice in the sense that i've taken sigmund freud's favorite ashtray which you can still find on his desk it's like this really beautiful oval dish with a cigar left in it so you've got two very phallic forms you've got an oval shape which looks like a vagina basically and then you've got a cigar that looks like a penis and i've taken these two forms and i've built them into into my practice in the sense that in every sculpture i make I build the oval and this and the cylinder into the figures and I've taken it sort of like a metaphor really so to talk about how I feel about things it's a place to put things this ashtray for me so if you look at the bottom of my figures they're always standing on this oval shape that I've taken and invariably, there's some kind of curling, sort of snake-like, smoky mo- movement or object within within the work. Um, and I guess the the most well known one is the actual replication of the form of the ashtray with the actual form of the cigar, and then all these kind of like uh, wormy faces crawling yeah, yeah. out, crawling out of it. And yeah, so I've taken I've taken this sort of like historical object, and I've and I've used it as a as a metaphor, really, for what I'm thinking about and how I feel about life
3: was it actually seeing it that give you that light bulb moment or was it the story of it and then you went to seek the actual physical object?
4: Oh my God, that is such a good question so it's both like so I was became obsessed with the Freud house, so I actually volunteered in the Freud house just so I could go there
0: brilliant. Um,
4: And they were so generous because they're Freudian, so they're used to
0: people. Yeah, yeah.
4: (laughs) Uh, They're very accepting people. And I would would go there, like, every week pretending to be a volunteer. But meanwhile, like, I was analysing the whole house, all (laughs) the objects, trying to really get into what was this thing,
3: you know, what was
4: psychoanalysis. And... The study, have you
3: been there? I have, but many years ago. I don't if it's changed any. It, no, of
4: course not. It's never <clears throat> going to change. It, so it's it's quite daunting, isn't it? Because it's A, of another world, and B, it's of another class. And it's this luxurious kind of environment with all these really kind of like intellectual objects and things. They, I mean, they could just be in the British Museum, really, but yeah, it's the fact yeah. that he, Freud, had collected them all. And the thing I identified most with was the ashtray with the faggin. That was, it was that simple. And I just thought, oh, this is where I'm at. And then when I saw that it was a jade dish and it was from Russia, so my grandmother was a Russian refugee, something unconsciously or semi-consciously in my head just clicked. And that was the thing that I could pull from that situation to identify my allegiance with The talking here,
3: as it were. I didn't see that item when I was there. And and I was there 20 years ago. So
4: Mm. I assure you it was there. (laughs) No doubt.
3: And, And funnily enough, when I went there, it wasn't to see the house. Tim Noble and Sue Webster were having an exhibition in there. Yeah. And that's what I went to see was the exhibition in that house. So we had a tour of the house because the work was scattered all around. So I don't remember that object, but did he ever make reference to the ashtray and was it cigar or cigarette? Yeah. Did you say?
4: Well, he was a massive smoker. He um eventually he had a prosthetic jaw, uh, jaw put in due to um due to cancer of the
3: jaw. Oh, wow. okay.
4: And he would have towards the end of his life, he had his um mouth propped open with a clothes peg so he could actually smoke cigars. And he said that cigars were his. Favorite hobby after even before collecting antiquities, and so Freud and smoking—it's brilliant, isn't it? This figure, this huge figure who who brought into our kind of lexicon, you know, oral fixation, um, all all these Freudian words that we use on the daily—he basically was a massive nicotine addict. And he had four ashtrays, but this was the one that was on his desk that he used every day. And so it's still there with the cigar, one of his last cigars left in it.
3: And did he ever make reference to that cigar and the ashtray as you are, or is that reference wholly yours?
4: Freud spoke a lot about smoking. He also wrote a monograph. He also wrote a lot about cocaine I mean, yeah. these were things that he dealt with, like, but not in the way that I'm referencing it. Yeah, he okay. didn't really like contemporary artists, although the Freud Museum is a pilgrimage for contemporary artists. And I don't know if you remember the amazing installation with the mirror. Uh, I, what was I it? Don't,
3: I don't. Oh, it's
4: just the best. This is really bad. I've forgotten the artist. I think it's here, Sean. He just mirrored the whole ceiling. I mean, there's been, you know, like you were saying that um Tim and Sue were yeah. there. It, it, they've they've had amazing shows, like Sophie Cow laid her wedding dress on the couch. I mean, it is a, you, you know, a, like I said, a pilgrim site for, for artists. But Freud wasn't very keen on um contemporary artists. So, I don't know, don't really think he would have liked my work that much. I mean, he avoided meeting Salvador Dali for years. And then, when eventually he did meet him, he called him a Spanish madman.
3: <laughs> <laughs> if if the cap fits, let's wear it, eh?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did acknowledge he could paint. Yeah. And there is a brilliant drawing of Freud in the house um, that Dali did with his head made up of snails. Oh, super. So, you know, I mean, yeah, but he didn't think much of the Surrealists approach and, psychoanalysis.
3: And you personally, um, mm. about your creative journey, did you have creativity in the home growing up?
4: Uh, well, depends what you call creativity. But did I have artist parents? No, absolutely not. I mean, I was born on a housing estate in Kings Lynn. And I remember... The first time I saw something colorful, basically my um, I got picked up from nursery by my friend's grandmother and she couldn't speak English. She was Indian and she took us home and she gave us rice and yogurt. And there was this picture of Ganesh on the wall. And I must've been about three and a half. And I was like, holy shit, there is something more to <laughs> life." the mashed potato, and kind of, you know, some cheap reprint. Um, My parents went to um, teacher training college. So it wasn't that they were uneducated, and it wasn't that they didn't have an idea where the Tate Modern was. And also they were part of that London overspill. So, like, one of my great grandfathers was the Lord Mayor of Hackney. My mum was born in Margate. And so my dad was born in greater London. So they were, but they were the kids that had done good. They'd got into teach training college. So they had these ideas, but no, there wasn't really art in my house. No, my mum made Play-Doh.
3: That'll do. You questioned the creativity at the start of that question. What creativity was in the home?
4: Oh, I really believe that creativity comes in so many forms. So my father was really musical and he got a scholarship um, to uh, one of the, I can't remember, one of those grammar schools in um, in like the Windsor area. In fact, he actually got a choral scholarship to oh, wow. lead them. my grandfather dug the roads and drove a three wheeler van and said he wasn't going to go to school with a load of
3: puffs. So my (laughs) different. At least he wasn't held back. (laughs) Imagine. Uh
4: But actually, from that kind of perspective, if you think about it, it's not about sexuality, it's about class. Yeah. And you know.
3: Yeah, well, unfortunately, you find with a lot of the working class, we're our own worst enemy because we think that going beyond a certain level is beyond us.
4: It's really complicated because I feel really transient. And I think even the art world's really curious place. There are so many glass ceilings in the art world. yet there are so many kind of amazing portholes. You, it's a really generous place in many ways yeah. where all kinds of different people rub shoulders with each other all the time. I mean, I've experienced some incredible generosity from
3: people, no. Likewise, they... every now and then, when I do or say something in my head, I'll be going, <laughs> you know, don't don't get above your station. The other side of me quickly turns up and says, no, no, you know, any any station's yours.
4: Yeah, it's true. Like, I, the art world's funny, isn't it? I, I I really love um what Grayson Perry said. Um, he said, oh, you know, I'm signed up to the Church of Arts. And I think that, I think the art world is a bit of a church because you do have to take practices seriously. You know, you it's like, um, you know, when you turn up, I don't know, to a performance and someone's whipping tape off their genitals, <laughs> you don't <laughs> yeah. laugh, okay, right, fine, you know. So there is a kind of a binding, a binding code of respect if you want. and. Yeah. But I think once you signed up to that, yeah, sure, you can laugh afterwards, but yeah, it's it's got its moments. And funnily enough, I went um, I've got a show opening in Rome and um I went to work in a ceramic factory, but at night I ended up staying in a convent. And wow. I got talking to these nuns and it was quite amusing. And, you know, and it was Sunday and I really thought, oh, you know, and they'd got their chapel in the convent. And I said to them, I said, look, sisters, I am actually signed up to the church of art. <laughs> this is
3: just how it is with me, and, then,
4: and after that they were like oh all right then and it was so sweet to me you know they just expected no more
3: superb when was the point you remember that you wanted to become an artist
4: I well my mother says that I didn't really do anything after nursery school and that all I spent my time was cutting sticking and gluing and it wasn't that I was academically incapable but some things happened in my family life. So imagine I went to five different secondary
3: schools. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's hardcore. But well, each year or? Yeah, it wasn't hmm. easy. So... Was that through time... family moving or through you being a pain in the arse and getting kicked it out? It was my mother. Okay. And after
4: that happened to me, so by the time I went to the fifth secondary school... Well, partly, though, by the time I'd gone to the fourth, I was a pain in the arse. And by the time I'd gone to the fifth, I just didn't go. So I went to work. So I got this will make you laugh, actually. I got I went I decided to get a job. I was going to be 16 very, very shortly. So I was going to get a job and that was it. And then I did leave home. But what I did was I went around applying. You can imagine. So I got a job in a fruit and veg shop. I got a job in a cafe, but then I got a job on a market store, but it wasn't any old market store. They were milliners. And oh, they. Yeah. so I got trained to make hats properly, like in Luton, in the um, the, the market wow. was in Cambridge, but I went to the factories in Luton. And home I got of milliners. See. Yeah. So like they made hats for Liberty. They worked with Philip Treacy. I met Isabella Blow. I, wow. So it was a whole whole different scene. Although, yes, I had to spend a lot of my time standing on a market stall. That was an education in itself. I, I met people. And then, so I was always making. I knew how to do certain things. though I didn't see it as art in any shape or form. Then I thought, oh, I can't stand on a market stall forever. I was really tough one, you know, like <laughs> five years. I'd seen it all, done it all. And so I kind of... Thought, right i'm going to go back to, to so i went to adult education class well i met like loads of squaddies' wives and <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing i had this art history teacher and she was a chilean refugee and that chimed with me it was somebody i could understand i knew that kind of traumatic background i could relate to the way what she was doing so i only went i basically i got into cambridge and i got into Glasgow and I got into I can't remember where else I got, but in my infinite wisdom I went to Glasgow and I got this really academic degree like we used to have this guy called Professor Tate who used to talk about Palladio and his it's Palladio and his um mansions I say so I had this really hardcore training and in in, in what
3: degree was that Holly sorry was that fine art history okay sorry no
4: so yeah the history of art so after that, what do you do? You go to work in Christie's or you go to work in a museum or you go to, I didn't, I went to work in cinema. I went, I got a job as an assistant in Italy working in cinema which was much more me like making sets. So like I'd have my lunch on the set of Gangs of New York, you know, and sort of wander around and yeah. So that was another phase in my life. Then I, some things happened and then I had my son Hector and I I would given birth and they they were like, on the birth certificate, they were like, you had to write your occupation. And so, so my husband was already a photographer. Well, my partner at that point was already a photographer. He wrote photographer. I wrote artist, artist. Okay, fine, I'm an artist. And then my life sort of rumbled on and I, Got into Chelsea Art College. I wanted to do the BA, but then because I'd already got this art history yeah, degree, yeah. it was equivalent, and they wanted something ridiculous equivalent learning fees. It would have cost, I don't know, nine, 10, whatever. So they looked at my portfolio and they said, Oh, I think you can do the master's. So the masters, they looked at my portfolio and I got onto the masters. And then as much as I fought with them at art school, they were so good to me. I got a Stanley Picker bursary. I got an artist, some American collector's bursary. So that, so I had a four, then I had got a formal art education and that's the way I did it. (laughs) It's not easy in a system like Chelsea to give different people chances. And, you know, like I was living in a council flat in Lewisham. Meanwhile, on the MA, we had a guy from Korea whose butler came in and hung his show. That's how London works. The fine art course at Chelsea split into two parts. You do the PG dip and then you go to do the Masters. You do it in a year. So most other places had two years at that point. But Chelsea split it up and it took me three years because I didn't have the money to do to continue to the MA and so I reapplied and you know I was considered and you're so right when you're considered then doubts do disappear because it's not that money is a simple sign of you know validation it's more that it's really difficult to make things without it
3: yeah definitely I mean I, I stopped my my MA because well, yeah my, my partner similar to you I was I'd started mm. it I was about maybe six weeks in and my partner fell pregnant and then that was it. It was like, I can't be a student with a family because it's just fucking selfish.
4: Well, it's really hard and it's kind of, an art college demands that you're there. That is the point about art college. It's about being with other artists and being part of it. And in fact, on my MA, I was hated by 50% the course because it was like this classic bunfight. This is Chelsea all over. You turn up, there you've got all these international people. half the room doesn't speak proper English. everyone's trying to get to know each other and you know and yet and then you're supposed to within that the way they, they make you bond it's like some crazy ex- psychological experiment is that you're all supposed to sort out your own studio spaces. I had a child to pick up. So I just dumped my stuff in the best corner I can find. <laughs> I'm here for the next year, sorry, I've got to leave. And what was brilliant about this was, I spent a year in a room with all Asian students from Korea and China, because they just followed suit. They were like, oh, that's the thing to do, we'll follow her. Brilliant. Great. And it was brilliant that they taught me about paper, drawing, um, I learned a whole set of different manners, Um, I also watched somebody very famous who was up for a Turner Prize make somebody Chinese who'd been in a boarding school in England from the age of four cry. I saw the best and the worst side of art college in that room. You know, she'd done this series of paintings and he just looked at her and said, you need to do a lot better in life if you're going to make it anywhere kind of thing. It was one of those talks. So, I mean, who knows? It might have done us some good. I I was going to say,
3: how, how wrong is that? You know, I don't
4: know. The person
3: crying. Who knows? <laughs> yeah,
4: I mean, there was a lot of that. It wasn't there. <laughs> no, but that's really interesting because I go to my studio and I don't want to sound glib, especially talking to you. But sometimes I feel like I'm entering a cell. And that's why I really like staying with the nuns this evening and, the, yeah. and working in the ceramic factory by day because having some kind of some kind of barrier, some kind of being confined somehow, having it like a specific place that matches your head in which to make art is really useful. And and as pro- and as horrible as it was, I'm sure prison from that point of view, you know, you had to get down to making the work. There was nothing else to do. And that is like having an art studio. You can't have distractions like sofas and TVs. And, you know, well, you'd never have one of those in an art studio. It's just like, Go in, do the work, focus. That is But also, is
3: what, what I had, Holly, I had no distractions of family and obligations. I mm. didn't have to go to earn money to get my shopping because I had three shit meals For a day that. given to me. You know, so I, I could... <laughs>
4: oh, it sounds really good. Like, I'm paired with Louise Bourgeois and this uh, giant show at the minute, Body Poetics, and as soon as her husband died, she, she was, you know heartbroken yeah, yeah, she yeah. chucked out the kitchen she turned the whole house into her studio really? and if you've ever seen videos of her that is it like she yeah. you know oh, i'd do the same, do the same. <laughs> in fact my son's just gone back to uni and the house is full of ready-made <laughs> soup because cooking and cleaning and doing those things is actually very distracting
1: ready to pop the question.
3: How did clay come into your world
4: Oh, uh, it's been a long struggle um with clay so i've always really liked that kind of material since a kid like the play-doh and then oh, okay. i mean literally since play-doh and then at chelsea um how did it come into my world professionally at chelsea i went to ask about using clay and I got the guy there's lovely, but I clearly got him on the wrong day. And Grayson Perry was just getting to be really mega famous. And he went, I'm not going to teach you how to make a pot. And I used to be very um bad at asking for what I wanted. Yeah. And I just was like, oh, I didn't even want to make a pot. I don't <laughs> So I left and I carried on using plasticine and making films and collaging and sticking and and making, uh, using paper clay and papier-mâché and all of that stuff. And then um, I finished my master's and I was like cutting, gluing and sticking in this shared studio. I'd always kept shared studio space, partly because my house has always been so small and partly because it was that one space that I had. Anyway, so I was there with my millions of magazines doing what I was doing. And then I saw my friend at the school gates, and she's amazing. She's a ceramicist from the Royal College, and she taught in the local adult education. And I was like, oh, she's like, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Oh, I'm doing this. Yeah, I'm a part of this group show that nobody will ever see. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, you, you should come to my clay class. So I was like, okay, I'll come to your clay class. The minute I got in that clay class, that was it.
3: Grown-up plasticine, right?
4: Yeah, <laughs> candlesticks, building this, building that, building the other, building, building, building. Then, then I took over the uh, dining table, building, 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 and then I said I could do a show. Uh, the old um it was called griffin space my friend karen david gave me a show and i said yeah yeah i can oh yeah yeah and then i supplied these clay sculptures that i'd had to mend with milliput. books <laughs> <laughs> and it just and it just kept going and going and going but it's just such a lovely tactile material i mean i do do other things like i made a film recently um about clay and um but there's something magical about clay in the sense it's so bodily and it's so breakable it. and it's and it's so fragile yet yeah, it's so resilient and yet it's also something that we all know like so when it's so funny what be, a curators always really worry whenever they do an exhibition with you people keep touching the work oh yeah <laughs> of course they do because they hold a mug every day yeah. or they a plate it's no
3: different it's ceramic and i kind of quite like that really well i i just love the fact that we we might be watching telly and they'll they'll dig up a a two and a half thousand year old clay pot, yeah. and it's it's no fucking different to what you made yesterday. Totally, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's it blows my mind.
4: Where would we be though without the pot? That's the exactly. vessel. I yeah. mean, in every sense, like it's such a metaphor, isn't it? A vessel for being, you know, from being female, even being male, we're kind of vessels in a sense, and 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 you know where would we be what would we gather our stuff in how would
3: we eat exactly so it was at that point when you joined that class and you saw what your possibilities were in that material that you wanted to be it was was at
4: that point where i really saw how the whole process because the kiln was also part of that classroom the drying room the whole setup i was like okay this is how it works from a to b and then i realized right because that's the other thing isn't it it's about making artwork is about control over process and even artists that have huge budgets okay they might get things fabricated but they really generally understand those processes and when they don't you can see there's a loss of control and it becomes less interesting
3: yeah
4: yeah and i think that There's something in that. So it was at that point in that adult education class where I could see that process. And I knew that if I could get that process for myself that I could then work with those limitations. But it was also in that class when I made my first ashtray and I was like, "Ah, yes, this is what I wanna work with. Because it's like, anyway, you have to start, don't you? With um, the basics. I was like, well, I knew I wanted to build enormous form, but it wasn't going to work in the way that I wanted to do it. So I, you know, I worked out that I could use those forms um with like the nuts and bolts and the, you know, and the colander that, I, that they had real meaning for me. And I could use those forms and and then I could build on them and Got to make yeah. a big astro. So, yeah, exactly. So I've kept that object. I really, really? love that object.
3: Which so, beautiful how your first Eureka moment is the one that you're in all this time later.
4: Yeah, the like, I, yeah I just stick to it. Yeah, I know. And funnily enough, I did this funny drawing of this, this kind of figure. And then I gave it some little legs and um, some Adidas shoes. And then it says, I can't really leave the ashtray. I feel like it's become my dwelling myself. <laughs> yeah. know my place of comfort and that's funny because i think we've been talking a lot about this how a place that could be so discomforting can also be a total place of comfort how we find like comfort in solitude and whenever you've been i think not you but like humans we you me everybody whenever we've been forced into a solitude i don't know tell me if i'm right or wrong but I feel like I've really mastered that solitude, or that's what I'm always trying to master. And once I'm in that space and I can cope with that solitude, that's when the good things really happen. Yeah. And there's some, there's, there's a sort of a place of comfort in that object for me, even though it's like an ashtray.
3: Well, which piece that you've created do you think has got the biggest emotional connection?
4: Probably that ashtray that I made in my adult pottery Perfect. class that doesn't even, partic- I mean, it does look like my work, but the colours are different. The glazing is different. You know, I was experimenting with um you, the, the, the glaze that you paint on, you know, and it, it's just got a very different articulation. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely limited by my knowledge at that point. Um, I I, I think that achievements are really strange. I I always feel whatever I've done recently is somehow the most important thing as well. And rightly I've so. i actually managed it. It's like, oh my God, I've managed it. So I made a public sculpture on um, at a temple in the artist's garden, in the roof nice. garden, and there was a missing balustrade. And I basically just recreated the balustrade mm-hmm. and I sort of put it in, but I put it in figuratively. and But I, uh, but I glazed it in a way that it looked like the old mouldy London stone. So you could see it, you can't see it. And... It's those kind of difficult things that I really enjoy yeah. You know, afterwards. But I think I've got an emotional connection to most of my work. And if I don't, I smash it. I nice. just get rid of it. Nice. If I know that it's not good enough or it's not going to go anywhere or it just didn't teach me anything or, yeah, I get rid of it.
3: If it's not emitting an energy, then, yeah, why should it be there? Oh, yeah, I totally yeah. understand that. Well, I'd like to talk about the exhibition you're in at the moment, the group exhibition in Giant Gallery in Bournemouth. But just before I do, as a precursor to that, if you could be in an exhibition with any five artists, past or present, what would your ideal group show be?
4: Oh, my word. That's really difficult, because on the one hand, I think I've actually done it. I mean, I'm in it now. I'm I'm just going to go with the reality of what I'm in because for this, that's such a good question. But then I'm thinking, wow, I don't want to be in an exhibition with them because I'm going to be shown up. And then it's like, oh no, I am actually in an exhibition with them. Circling your question, I'm currently in an exhibition with, is it 18? Yeah, nine pairs of artists. Wow. And I mean, I got paired with a Louise Bourgeois and that was terrifying. Although I did kind of like push for that but not because I feel my work is like Louise Bourgeois necessarily it's more that my work is like hers from the point of view she was in lifelong psychoanalysis yeah and her work is all about psychoanalysis you know her relationship to that moment and actually she hated clay she famously like had a love hate relationship with it yeah. and she described that the essential quality of ceramics was breakability which was a which was which was something she refused yet she was a famous smasher if yeah. you watch films about her she's always smashing pots smashing terracotta <laughs> and her father apparently had this bust of Mary louise somebody in his office and she wanted to run in and smash it brilliant you know so it's that kind of like tension that I worked on um, to make this show uh where I knew I was going to be paired with her. And I made this film of me smashing objects. And then what I did with the smashed clay objects was I made them into um I made them into um ceramics, wall-based ceramics. And I called them the essentials after directly quoting Louise, you know, her opinion that the essential quality of
3: ceramic is its breakability.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I've done it. I think.
3: (laughs) And how good did you feel when you got the go-ahead that you was being paired with a giant like that?
4: Uh, Amazing, because it meant that somebody had to believe in me enough to lend me a Louise Bourgeois. So, Um, I mean, Marcel Joseph and Becca Pellifrye are the two curators, and they're both wonderful, but Marcel Joseph is such a generous person. And so along with Richard Saultoon Gallery, actually, they lent one of the Louise Bourgeois, the Cross-Eyed Woman, which was apparently something Louise Bourgeois liked to do. She liked to cross her eyes for a laugh at her assistant, Jerry. And and another collector called Kathy Wills lent the most amazing watercolour. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? It's like the generosity of others to make culture. Yeah. You know, I couldn't have put myself in this exhibition in the sense I couldn't have gone out and bought a Louise Bourgeois. I don't know how much they cost, but it's got to be at least 20,000 smackeroonies and that's not going to happen. So it's that kind of relationship that is really surprising, but yeah, it's coming from people who are really invested in art in a way that they want to continue to make culture and also have you been to giant space in Bournemouth
3: I haven't I haven't. I think you'd love it I, so, I definitely would love it because I know well I'm, I know Stuart anyway so so giant is a bonkers right so you've got
4: Bournemouth and like any seaside town it's got its pros it's got its cons you know and you can see there's a lot of regeneration but there is no contemporary art nothing and then you get to this what Stuart's done is, is there's this Bobby's building. Bobby's building is kind of like Phoenix, it's or or Harrod's of Bournemouth. Yeah. Then you've got this Edwardian, very grand seaside department store, red brick, beautiful. Like you go and there's perfume and all that stuff. But then you catch this lift and you come to the top and it's a total white cube. And it's full of people like Rosie Gibbons, the amazing performance artist, Brilliant. photocopied her bottom on a uh, photocopier during her performance. You know, so you got this contrast of happenings going on and like yeah I mean I really admire Stuart for for this he's definitely bringing a very different um a very different approach to making culture right in the heart of Bournemouth and so the opening was incredible because they've got a really well-known art school and there were all these artists from the art school and people literally put it in their diaries. It was such a big opening. And Hector and I, we couldn't be bothered to take the stairs. So we took the lift and we didn't realise that there'd be a queue around the stairs. We thought we'd just turn up and we were really early. <laughs> you know, maybe no one would be there. Anyway, so we'd get out the lift and by getting out the lift, we dodged the queue. And all these people turned around and gave us really dirty.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Superb.
4: Yeah, but there's, yeah, it's a really incredible space. And I think that the um, Body Poetics show is a really ambitious show that,
0: that,
4: that, you know, the space
3: merits, really. So you've said that it's um, nine pairs of Mm -hmm. female artists, is that correct?
4: Yeah, all female artists, because Marcel Joseph um, has a very feminist policy of collecting female art, and she has a um curatorial um curatorial movement that she calls uh girl power that's it she has a girl power collecting policy which is nice
3: yeah and how long is it on from until
4: it's it's just started and it's on until the 6th of may so okay. anyone going to the amazing oceanarium in bournemouth should also pop into body uh, bobby's building for free and go and see it I mean, it, yeah, it's got like Louise Bourgeois, Helen Chadwick, Judy Chicago, Guerrilla Girls, Senga Nengudi, Nikki De Zonfal, Carolee Schneeman, Penny Slinger, Kiki Smith, all paired with a contemporary artist.
3: Brilliant. It's
4: pretty How big. How cool opinion. is that? Yeah,
3: really cool. <laughs> well, if a person was to go up in that lift in Bobby's by accident <laughs> and come come out into body poetics, yeah. What do you think they would make of, of that exhibition?
4: Um, it would really uh, depend, that's a good question. But again, it's all relative, isn't it? It would depend on the person. And I did love watching Rosie Gibbons's performance because I could see people that were horrified. And at the same time, there were people that were just in love. You know, some people really couldn't handle it, not because of her, but because of them. And their their own sensibilities, their own reaction, and there's a there's also a huge Thai shani sculpture, which is a massive pair of bright pink breasts, with then like you know a faceless kind of yeah yeah um faces kind of form attached, and it's not really what you expect to see in a shopping center
3: and would they um,
0: be Although
4: shocked? it is clearly an art gallery i mean it's made its it's it's defined its space it's yeah. got, you know it's it's above it's got this it's kind of like a tokyo or a chinese experience you know like the the the, the gallery in the shopping center but i don't think that's very
3: british is it no no you know this white cube yeah i was uh, talking to someone just last week who said that in korea their gallery spaces are in shopping centers Yeah, and, and i china. wasn't i wasn't aware of that china yeah, as well yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. In the mall, yeah,
4: absolutely. Yeah, I, I went on a residency to China actually. Um, I went to um, Chengdu, which is known as the livable city. It's only okay. got several million, million, million people in the <laughs> and three Louis Vuittons or whatever they've got. And it was just brilliant, yeah. But uh, we went out into these mountains and we did a show in a newly constructed shopping mall, which wow. was all marble. And what was really interesting, it, I don't know how this came about, but there was it was again it was like some of the most well-known Chinese artists paired with British artists, and they would they had security guards. They wouldn't let the locals in. Wow! And apparently in China they put all these exhibitions up in shopping malls, but then they are not public, so they're really tightly controlled because. In China, they really do see contemporary art as having the ability to be the devil.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah. It was really odd. It was really odd. It was... It was something else. Uh, yeah, it was something else.
3: But Stuart Semple isn't doing that in the Giant Gallery, though, right? No no,
4: no, no, no. You are free to walk in, and I must say, Stuart knows how to throw a party. I want to meet the Stuart. I mean, not that I partake, but the booze was flowing. I tell you, Brilliant. I mean, he's he must have such a good reputation
0: in Bond.
3: <laughs> it's it's beautiful that the artists appeared. Was everyone given an artist to work with? Yeah I
4: mean lots of the artists are dead so um, yes but the curators chose who the contemporary artists which are going to work with and I think that like that's a really nice way of working because it brings it brings sort of like contemporary artists into the canon doesn't it? Um, I mean the history of art I mean there are many histories of art there are so many different histories of art but I think artists do spend a lot of time talking to dead people and yeah, it's like, or imaginary people or, and this, this is really funny. This, this, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. It's like, and it was what you were saying before about glass ceilings and ladders. And I think it's that entitlement. Who do you feel that you can be aligned to who, who do you feel that you can talk to, you know, you often hear like, or you would often hear men, like great painters talking about themselves in the same kind of um, sentence as Picasso. I mean, imagine if I started doing that. Well, my work's really like Picasso because I mean, you, you get laughed out of town, but at what point as an artist do you allow yourself to say, oh, actually, I really got this deep sympathy and empathy with the work of, and I feel it's really like affected my work. And I think like Louise Bourgeois is somebody that has touched on the lives of so many contemporary artists, so many. And so it was a real privilege to be be anywhere near her, like in a public context.
3: Yeah. But have you had that moment yet when you go to yourself unpaired with a giant?
4: It's an unfair pairing on for her.
3: (laughs) <laughs> but have you had that
4: moment? I yet? don't. No, she was really generous, Louise Bourgeois. Towards the end of her life, like I mean, generous in a clever way. Towards the end of her life, when she was very, very frail, she would do Sunday salons. So she would invite yeah. young artists to talk to you because I think there comes a tipping point, doesn't there? Like with people with really long careers, they love to be around younger people. So, for example, my son's got a girlfriend. who's at art college. I'm like totally fascinated. What are you doing? What are you using? How are you making it? Oh, what are you Mom. thinking? About? You know, it's that type of thing. Because I mean, I don't know. I I've, I I I do worry that Louise Borthmour might, might haunt me if she doesn't like the work. But I tried <laughs> my very best to respect, you know, her kind of well, her, her life work. Really, yeah. I mean, there's no comparison.
3: No, but you're not there to be compared.
4: Yeah, yeah. To
3: her, who can be compared to her? Really, you're you're working together to highlight each other's work. That yeah. that's what you're doing.
4: But it's all a work in progress, isn't it? And there are some artists that that are just so significant, and it, it would be crazy to make artwork and never ever consider them at some
3: point. Of course.
4: Like there are just some groundbreaking works. That you know, so for example, if you were gonna work with tents, you would automatically think Tracy Emin. There's just no way around. But that doesn't mean Four that no beds. one else like, can
3: use a tent.
4: No, exactly. Of course not, because like you know, her bed. She was referencing Rauschenberg and Johns, and and that's the thing about gaining in confidence and 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 really being signed up to the Church of Art. You can all sing the same song but you're just going to sing it differently. I mean, it is a congregation. And then there are sliding scales of success with that or not. But, you know, I've come to the point in my life where I understand I'm going to make art come what may. It's something I need to do. It's a compulsive disorder. So, (laughs) or necessity, depending on how you see (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fine to be a fan, and I think it's a fine fine to approach other people's work with work with a huge amount of respect and adoration.
3: I totally agree.
4: You know, just a shame I don't get to keep one of those Louise Bourgeois. It's going to be the oh, I'll tell you something. It's going to be the <laughs> yeah. only time that I'm going to have my work with a video camera for surveillance. <laughs> <today. laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I saw. I saw like this. Saw this. Uh, you know, like surveillance camera. Yeah. yeah. I really have made it.
3: (laughs) I am so
0: important.
4: Yeah, I know. That was the signifier. The signifier was the, uh, yeah, the security camera. Oh, my god! And what do
3: you think you'd like to do, Holly, if you wasn't an artist?
4: Be a diamond dealer? That's really bad, isn't it? (laughs) That is really bad. I mean, that's ethically awful. I'd never run a pub for obvious reasons. I don't know. I really don't know.
3: And the final question, um, where would anyone see what you're doing, be it website, social media?
4: Um, I'm on Instagram, pathetically. And I have a website, which I like to update with my um, favorite shows. So you can find me under hollystevenson.co.uk. Okay. And what am I doing at the minute? Oh, I've got f- all sorts of things going on. I'm in Body Poetics at Giant in Bournemouth. Um, I've got a show opening in Rome at Richard Saltoon next week. Nice. we centering ceramics. And I'm also in a show in West Kensington in what was the Queen's old Jaguar car showroom. Okay it looks like a scene that yeah it's a very interesting space and um that's with Annaline
3: space okay so you got it all going on yeah i've got
4: lots of nice things going on and then i've got a show coming up at the end of the year solo show with pie artworks which i hope you'll come along to where's that in um east castle street
3: in town yeah yeah i know
4: yeah so i'll be sure to invite you
3: Ollie, anyway, sorry. See you soon. (laughs) Right. Thank you very much. Take good care. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. So we wasn't dictated to by advertisers. We decided from the offset to go ad-free, which means obviously we had to self-fund. So we set up the Ministry of Arts Patreon page. And without that support, we would not be able to produce this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you're able to support the podcast, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll find a link tree drop-down box, which will direct you straight to our Patreon page. And for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep us growing week by week. But if you're not able to do that, that's fine because this content is free for everyone. But leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to your podcast, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Everything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, Zadark.